you know, like Rose Dawson says in Titanic, she was looking at her life like if she would have married Cal. Everyone remembers that scene. And she's just like, and it just looked like hell. And for me, from the very beginning, looking forward to practicing as an obstetrician was like, this is hell. And I just signed up for hell and I'm going to live hell forever and ever. And I was the only one that thought like that. And I knew I was good and I and I got, you know, the praise and stuff like that and all the things to encourage me to keep going and do more. And I was doing it. But every time also my stomach tightening and going, no, no, no. Until, you know, I, I, I made enough enemies that I was like, OK, sorry, Kern, like I'm going to try and do it somewhere else. And so then I left there, did my fourth year over at Tufts, loved the girls there. Tufts like in Lo- Boston? Yeah, yeah. I oh went to Tufts. Yeah. Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm James Goodlatte. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Welcome back to the Holistic OBGYN podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Nathan Riley. I'm the Holistic OBGYN dual board certified. Not that that really matters in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as hospice and palliative medicine. I invited a very special woman um, as a guest onto the show today. Her name is Victoria Flores. She's an MD practicing in Southern California, attending home births. Now, you're probably thinking she's a typical OBGYN like me. Nope. She dropped out of residency and went the right path. She found the light and is now doing what Dr. Stu Fishbein used to do for Southern California. And for that, many of us applaud you, Victoria. Her story is so interesting and compelling. Um, From (laughs) practicing a little, uh, gosh, uh, what does she call it? The Temple of the Goddess. Um, Kind of like a a little bit of Wiccan sort of traditions there. Of course, she has a lot of indigenous blood in her, being Latina. And uh, that was really where she got her start in, in caring as being a woman, caring for women. And of course, the overly reductionist, materialistic view of women's health that she was presented with in her very high pedigree training at, uh, in medical school and then throughout um, all of her residency training until she decided to disqualify herself and go a different path. Um, it all kind of makes sense when you consider her history and really what uh, traditional birthkeeping looked like. So Victoria, like me, is a home birth doctor. We're one of the some of the few doctors that are actively practicing in the home birth space. Um, we both support midwifery. Um, and Victoria might even say she really honors traditional midwifery. And as a result, I thought it'd be really, really nice. She and I both get a lot of requests from med students, um, nursing students, midwifery students, OBGYN residents um, for career advice. And I hope that this conversation, in order to understand the stories of two home birth um, birth workers, doctor birth workers, <laughs> Um, that what that path might look like and, and some of the challenges that it poses. So Victoria came down to Oceanside, California, and we recorded this interview while it was awaiting a birth there for nearly four weeks. And um, 
and we're sitting on the beach and just having a chat as she and I do. Victoria and I got um, really got connected when she came to my Twins Breach Conference back in August 2023. We're going to be releasing pre-registration, um, which will be at a fat discount before January 1st, 2024. If you would like to attend the 2024 Twins Breach Conference, which is going to be August 8th through the 12th here in Louisville, Kentucky at the Omni William Penn, a big, beautiful hotel with big, giant meeting rooms. We're going to be accepting a few more people this year than we did last year, but trying to keep it small and intimate with a lot of guest speakers, not just OBGYNs and a couple of midwives, but actually more traditional midwives this time around with a couple of OBGYNs um, with the intention of teaching people the skills that have been largely lost by the conventional model around the uh, attendance to twins and breach, vaginal breach births. Um, in addition, a secondary intention is to bridge gaps between the traditional and the non-traditional midwives, the licensed and unlicensed midwives, the hospital birth workers and the out-of-hospital birth, birth workers, namely OBGYNs who are still in, this, in the system. Um, God bless them. And the out-of-hospital OBGYNs, um, doctors like Victoria Flores, and um, of course, midwives, doulas, and childbirth educators. So there's a lot to gather, uh, to, to glean from this episode. If anything touches you, please share the episode. It's a very, very inexpensive, free actually, way in order to support the show. You can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or um, Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. It really matters in order to get these conversations out to more people. I do this completely free um, to you guys, to the public. And so if you're enjoying the episode, please do those things. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, there won't be a video broadcast for this one because uh, we had some camera issues at the beach, as you can imagine, with outlets and plugs and everything. But you can listen to this one and just enjoy the ride. Um, there is, by the way, a little bit of background noise because there's a lot of people out there grilling and enjoying themselves with, you know, coronas and and you can hear the ocean in the background but it, it was such a lovely conversation and i think you need to hear it another way to support the show is to consider that we do have a couple brands that support the podcast one is we natal that's the only sponsor for this episode we natal makes the best prenatal vitamin on the market you're going to get adequate amounts of vitamin d choline um, methylfolate and a variety of other micronutrients that are largely i think underemphasized um, and and unavailable in the typical American diet, even if you are eating organic, regeneratively raised beef, if you want the healthiest baby, placenta, uterus, and mom from the start of pregnancy or even the start of your fertility journey all the way through well into the postpartum period in that hard, um, beautifully chaotic time of early parenting, you're going to want to make sure that you're as nourished as you possibly can be. So if you go to weenatal.com slash beloved, you can um, subscribe in order to get a monthly supply of their really all around great multivitamins. But especially if you're, you know, considering having kids or if you're actively pregnant, go there, purchase any of their prenatal products. Um, you're going to find that's actually nice compared to a lot of other brands. There's only three capsules versus 10 capsules that is uh, available in other, you know, reputable brands um, like Full Well, et cetera. Um, the three capsules per day is really, really helpful, especially if you're having a hard time stomaching um, a lot of food or swallowing a lot of pet capsules, whatever. Go there, purchase that. And when you add that that product to your cart, any prenatal product, you're going to get a free bottle of their Omega DHA Plus, which is another great accessory to a healthy pregnancy as a let's call it an insurance policy in addition to an already healthy lifestyle. I love WeNatal. Again, it's WeNatal.com slash beloved. Um, make sure you have the best. 
you only have one shot at this. You want to make sure that you and your baby are as nourished as possible. So wenatal.com slash beloved if you want to take advantage of that deal. Um, I think I have done the job of doing this intro. Why don't we get into my conversation with Victoria Flores, MD. Uh, Victoria, wait to, welcome to St. Malo Beach. Hi. We're in Oceanside, California. We are. And we have this unique opportunity to provide anybody out there. What I'm hoping actually is that we have some OBGYN residents and family medicine residents who tune in. Yep. Who are like, who are like, what is the nature of this birth work thing? Yeah. Like, like, what are we talking about here? And, um... And maybe they'll get like a little insight into what this work, you know, actually looks like. Um, you have a pretty compelling story. So why don't we start? Why don't we start there? Like why on earth? I mean, this is the question from society. Why on earth would you want to work outside of the hospital when you could have all of the benefits of being in a hospital? Like, like why? So tell us, tell your, tell your story in the briefest way you can, because you've got a, a really complicated story. Let's start there. Yeah, I mean, probably hear my feet rest right away on the microphone. It's it's a lot to ask of me to do. I have really not delved that deep a lot. Um, I mean, I do, you know, my personal life, but um, it's hard to do it publicly. And this is a, a public forum. So sure is. Um, where to begin? Well, I will say that little Victoria, back in the day, has always been kind of geeky. I was always kind of geeky. Um, I do remember um, parent visitation days in school and having the parents around my little Latino community in La Habra, which is a heavily Hispanic community. Um, and I guess it's North Orange County, right by East LA. Um, and my parents, they're from a generation where education was the ticket to get out and right. This is kind yeah. of like the the lesson that a lot of parents give their children is that you get an education, you're going to get out. So my parents followed the American dream. Um, their parents themselves were not as educated. I think my grandfather did graduate from high school, um, but my grandmother didn't. She had six children. My mother was number six. Um, my father, he came from a single mother who um, was a brilliant woman. She did finish high school. Um, and she had two children out of wedlock with um, some civil servants. One was a bailiff at a um, at a local courthouse, and the other one probably just some flirtatious Joe. Who knows? But she never got married, and she had my father. And he and my grandmother were raised in um, the projects of L.A. They were from the um, I think it was the I want to say Ruben, but it wasn't. Um, the name escapes me right now. It's going to come to me when I'm not thinking so hard about it. Um, but anyway, so there's um, different project developments around um, the county of L.A. And he was in one of them in East L.A. and went to Garfield High School. Um, it's pretty famous high Garfield school. High School. Yeah. yeah. I remember driving by it at some point. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Like I was hanging out with Ron. Um, last name. The, gar the, gar the gangster gardener. Ron, Ron Finley. He's got this whole plot of, of land in like. And like, 
I East have LA. Him. Yeah, I have. And it, yes, yes. He throws yes. all this stuff down. He was like, hey, do you want to go to one of Roy Choi's restaurants with me? Oh, wow. So we went and we took a hike like in, in my car and we drove by. And I think he had some connection to Garfield High School. But anyways, that whole part of L.A. is not what people generally think about when they think of L.A. Uh, from yeah. uh, let's say like from the vacation standpoint, yes. they're seeing Santa Monica. Exactly. They're seeing the guys on the rings and the tightrope and and Hollywood, of course. Yeah. But L.A. is a massive city yes. with a huge diversity. Yes. And you grew up in a part of town that I don't think too many people are like putting it on their list of right, places, places to see it necessarily. Exactly. Yeah, but I think of that. <laughs> I think of that when I think of L.A. I think of yeah. of of Compton and you know around the U.S.C. area. I mean, like. There's some. There's a lot of neighborhoods. Just a like lot. you said, everything. Yeah. Um, you know, the history of LA is um is, is so complicated from when it was first taken over by um, Californios from Mexico, then taken by the U.S. from the Californios, and then developed into a safe haven for people from the East Coast trying to make it in a world that was unfair to them on the East Coast, um, because land had already been given out and claim jumping and stuff had, you know, begun out on the West and um, economics in California back in the early days before it was California um, that we know. It was Alta California um, in about, I think it was 1845, it transitioned, maybe 47, to um, America. And um, yeah, so that wasn't that long ago, right? And so it really wasn't about the glitter glam in Hollywood initially. It was just a rugged... Um, Southwest, you know, wild, wild West world where people came to begin their new lives. My family ended up moving from Texas to New Mexico out to California um, in a group. So the family moved out altogether in order to begin some like type a of caravan life. of gypsies. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's how so many people got here. And in fact, Hollywood was established in the same way with a lot of Jewish people unable to get jobs out in the East Coast. And having to forge um, a different in- industry for themselves, and um, entertainment was one of them, and they did really great. Um, so that's Hollywood, you know. It started from nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you went to med school at USC. I did. So I liked yes, it. Yeah, I did. I did. Well, the thing is funny. Um, I, so as I went through my childhood, I like I was mentioning earlier, um, my parents were educated for their, um, you know, standing, I suppose, in society as Chicanos. Um, my father was a water biochemist. What is a Chicano? Um, a Chicano is a Mexican-American. Mexican-American. That's it. My wife um, would call herself a Chicano. I just, <laughs> just wanted to make sure that the audience understood. I wonder um, if Chicanex is a thing quite yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. I haven't quite My sister-in-law it. would know, I should ask. You yeah. should definitely <laughs> ask. Um, anywho, so he did water biochemistry, and my mother was an occupational therapist for um, NICU children. And so I was kind of always around science and medicine, and um, there was a, a group of friends that my parents had that were physicians and that were lawyers for the community, the Chicano community, that had you know civil rights goals in mind. And they were there for early stages of police brutality, the Cesar Chavez um, murder, um, conspiracy theories, whatever. Oh, uh, a whole bunch of streets <laughs> named after Mr. Senor Chavez yep, in yep, LA. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, the Chicano Moratorium, our, our families moved um, and worked for the government. A lot of them did for the Vietnam War. And then there was the movement to stop sending um, impoverished families' children off to war instead, you know, making it more of an even 
playing field. Anywho, so um, I was always around science. I was always around healthcare. I was always around children and childhood development. Um, and so it kind of was a natural thing for me to talk about a lot. And in school, um, I was it, it was easy for me to discuss math and sciences. And I think that that was just a blessing. It really, really was. And it made me stand out early. Um, and I didn't even know it really that I was standing out. Um, but that really helped get people interested in helping me become something. Yeah. Um, my parents never pushed me to go into medicine. Never, ever did. They thought I was actually crazy. And probably still do, honestly. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, it's a hard life to live. It's hard, and I think they kind of knew that. But that, you know, they just didn't talk about me doing stuff like that. And plus, I was a dancer. I was a ballerina. Danced to Anaheim Ballet. No kidding. Um, yep. Shout out to Aria Rosenberg and the Rosenberg family. <laughs> um, I'm sure she's listening. I'm sure okay. she is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we had um, a great time. I grew up in a ballet world then. And if you know the ballet world, it's funny. Um, it's very strict. And very regimented. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so there was no, like the, the USC experience, which is, by the way, for anybody listening, is probably one of the, I mean, I who knows? It's hard to compare. Some people but, say the top. Didn't they make a documentary called school. Black Code? They, they did, yes. About the like tremendous hardship of working in the ER in yes. USC. I mean, gunshots, car accidents, burns. I mean, like everything yep. goes to the center point, <laughs> the academic powerhouse that is USC. It was a great education. It and a Black a Code education. is when you have to shut everything down. Yeah, everything. And that's hard to imagine in a hospital. So that's where you did your training yes. in that regimented well, that's where I did medical school. Medical school. Medical gotcha. school. Yeah, gotcha. but there was a lot of training there. And I would say that 50% of the knowledge that I went out of residency with came from medical school, which I um, think is um, unusual. Unusual. I think a lot more people figured things out in residency. Um, but I mean, having that awesome experience prior to residency, um, I think it also um, created some energy amongst the people that I was working with, uh, you know, to put me in my place initially because I was maybe one of the only ones from an academic background like that. We had, um, and there's nothing wrong at all with choosing a different type of school, such as a Caribbean school, um, to to go into residency or something like that. But I felt like there was a kind of um, an ego push for, from some totally. bodies, totally. you know, yeah. um, to to make sure that I knew that despite my pedigree, that I was still, you know, nothing. She's a USC trained, you know, Latina. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. As if that really matters. I mean, what, you know, what I always tell people is the people and this is maybe because I was turned down by Stanford literally every step of the way in my education. For some reason, I just wanted, wanted to be in Palo Alto. I have no idea why. Looking back, I'm like, thank God I didn't because these the more prestigious a university, the more you find yourself surrounded by people that like to follow the rules and stay in the lines. And I was never the kid staying in the lines. I was like, let's make an airplane out of the paper. And they're like, no, that's not the exercise. And I suspect you're kind of like that as yeah, well. Definitely, definitely. I think that in school, um, it was a little bit me trying to just figure things out and follow the rules because I didn't know them. Yeah. But once I learned so much, school, once you know the rules, you're like, let's you know, let's start breaking them. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so there was, you know, comments on, um, like, um, you know how we get evaluated by our seniors, like at the end of yeah. every yeah. Uh, semester or whatever they call it in residency. I can't even remember. Um, and they would just be like, she doesn't follow ACOG. 
and be like, okay, like, but everyone's great and happy. You made Shmaycog. Shmaycog. Right? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> it was like, because I know ACOG. And um, of course, all my attendings were impressed that I would be able to creatively use the scenarios to to get things done acer, you know, in a way that um, they liked, that was safe, um, but kind of threw some people off and um, made them uncomfortable with yeah. decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So um, before you stepped out of the system, of course, you then have to break your back to get into residency. For those who don't know, I think it was the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2012. It was a, the, the person who developed the algorithm for the residency match right. was, a, was, I think, awarded a Nobel Prize in Economics. I do remember something like Which that. is like, when you think about that, that's like, that makes this seem way more of a big deal than any of us thought in med school. Right. It was just like, I just hope to get into residency somewhere. So you must have had to really push it. Yeah. And then you got into residency, and we'll get into that part. But before we do, you've always been a little bit counterculture, yeah, even sure. in your personal life. Definitely. Have you ever been in a cult or like uh, uh, maybe pagan? Maybe a goddess of worship. Well, perhaps we could get into that a little bit. I'm just kidding. Um, well, um, goddess temple of Orange County. Shout out to Ava Park. I love you. Um, she... Ariana and Ava. With that, I guess I'm listening here. <laughs> um, so Ava Park, um, beautiful woman, um, developed the goddess temple of Orange County. Um, so long ago i think so i actually went to uc santa cruz for a year of college undergrad before coming down um and i did some fullerton college and i thought i would go back to santa cruz to complete but then i was like you know what i'm here i'm happy let me just i'd be a janitor at uc santa cruz yeah. that's how beautiful that campus is, is. so <laughs> amazing and i definitely all my bestest friends are still there and i'm like yeah. gonna be there in a couple weeks to go to ren fair renaissance I mean, Smoking so pot excited. in the redwoods, nothing better. <laughs> oh my god, Portland, my first time there. It was like a, it was just like it was a pilgrimage. It was just like spokes of lines of humans coming to one field, and there was just this big, puff, oh my god. like a nuclear like cloud, and it was all weed. Like, and it was back in the day when it was natural leaves, you know. So like just hanging out at a Dave Matthews concert. <laughs> it was so. Funny. That's what. Santa Cruz is like, yeah. Yeah, and I would like look up in the trees and there was like reporters taking pictures to the annual, you know, oh March 20th Lord. Santa Cruz. I, it was great. I mean, I, it was eye-opening and my first lessons were always about, you know, who owns the land, who owns the air and, you know, commodification of the mm. earth and all these things. And um, so my established, you know, college education was about connecting, interconnectedness. Yeah. So, and I've always been drawn to that. So anyway, back to Ava Park. Ava, real quick though, you're also you're you're Latina. You have some indigenous blood naturally. Yeah. Um, and I just finished a book called Black Earth Wisdom, uh, which is so good. You yeah. have to read it. It's a bunch of interviews by Leah Peniman with the Black eco conservationists around the world and how it's deeply rooted in in the Afro and Afro Brazilian roots. The this notion that like we are not separate from this whole ecosystem, and in, in the indigenous traditions, my mother, so my wife is Mexican. Her mother is like indigenous Mexican with like, like half Spaniard, half indigenous. It's indigenous. always like that, right? Yeah, right. It always is. <laughs> uh, but she has deeply, deep, deep appreciation and sort of an ongoing uh, modesty around, uh, around this, what, what this lineage really means. And like, it, it's sort of like the African sort of notion of Ubuntu. Like if you're not doing well, I'm not doing well. But, but you might even say the same for the soil and the trees and the plants and the flowers. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, back in the days, the tribes were definitely at war and, you know, 
when there is no enemy to unite people, then they often infight, right? Yeah. And so that happened in the Native communities as well. And it's one of the reasons why I'm not tribally affiliated, even though I have about 40% Pueblo Indian blood with special, um, you know, pockets of um, people that are still related to me. Um, but things are just, you know, really watered down because of that breaking apart of tribal families. Um, whether it be in fighting or intended um, shipment of children to different boarding schools. But yeah, once you're, you know, shown native ways, it's hard to kind of pretend they don't exist. Yeah. 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 I get what your wife is feeling. Yeah. So, right. It's like a part of your, your, your sort of, it's like rooted inside of you. Yeah. But, yeah. anyways, yeah. continue. Thank continue. You. Yeah. So, uh, so Ava made this beautiful temple and um, initially, um, and I was there in, in part of the earlier stages of it back, this is probably back in 2007. I was such, that was a long time ago. And um, a part of it is um, entering a school to, and it was an informal training with her on how to priestess a temple. Priestess the temple means um, you're serving a group serving their home where they're going to group to talk about things. And so I spent a lot of time, I think it was like two years, um, cleaning that place, cleaning trash cans, toilets, uh, switching out candles, dusting libraries, welcoming people. In the temple. In the temple, right. So you wow. serve the temple for a period of time. And then at some point, you do get invited to become a priestess of the temple, which means you're able to hold sacred space for women. Um, and so I always, you know, had the mind that women need to be acknowledged for the powers that they have in this world. And um, I graduated high school in 2004. It was kind of like that 90s power woman shift, right? So there's a lot of like Alanis Morissette in my background, <laughs> a lot of, you know, um, Dol Dolores O'Riordan from the yeah. Cranberries, yeah. A, lot, a lot of powerful women, um, especially with my parents coming out of the 60s. So um, I, I, I jived with that instead of the basic Judeo-Christian stuff that went on in, you know, most households. Um, my family did not push those things, although we did have that foundational information, um, which I thought was great because it was a, a good place to begin. And I don't regret that at all. And I never felt pressured. Every decision I made religiously has always been from my heart and supported by my family. So that's really cool. So anyway, so in the temple, I learned about um, phases and epics in women's lives. I learned about um, the sanctity of these epics, you know, the maiden, the mother, and what most people talk about, the crone. But Ava included the queen stage. And so that was a unique adjustment to the trinity, the goddess trinity, yeah. which was the maiden mother crown. And so why did she include it? That's because um, in the old world, life expectancy was shorter. It was like 40s, 50s, right? So then you enter your, what we now call the queen stage, which is like your postmenopausal stage. But before you become so inactive that you're kind of oh, okay. sedentary. Um, and, and so she acknowledged that change in our life expectancy and the power women have when they're beyond raising children, but also in that phase before they become housebound because of ailment. Sure. Yeah. So I'm um, the queen phase. So um, I've always tried to live my life acknowledging the seasons of it. And so, yes, you're right. I come from a radical philosophy on women and um, it's helped me 
to really listen to women and appreciate women, especially women of um, ancient spirit. And um, midwifery yeah. is one of those. And so I always um, enjoyed hearing about midwifery, but I didn't really know it was a thing in today's time. I thought that being an obstetrician was the midwife of today. And it's so weird. Sometimes I just sit there in meditation and prayer and wonder, why did no midwife cross my path? Yeah. I mean, I literally was amongst so many types of women that could have been midwives and it never, ever became a point of conversation. So I never was skewed off of the path of pre-med. Yeah. And so I accomplished that duty because I always wanted to be delivering babies. Even the first lab that I got into with Dr. Ulrika Luter, shout out to Luter Lab. <laughs> Luter Lab is out there and they're all wonderful women. I got to show you some of their stuff. They're toxicologists, right? So we learned about toxicology in the women's body, in the woman's body. Um, and so I, every step of the way, I've been learning things on how to support women's health. Mm. And um, I thought OBGYN was going to be where it was at. And then, as you know, you get there and you kind of realize that is a wannabe surgery program. Like yeah. you really are amongst a lot of people that really appreciate um, the art of surgery, but also are very um, modern thinking. And that's very not my nature of a very ancient way of being. And Dr. Stu always says I have an old soul, which is one reason why I, you know, appreciate yeah. the style of midwifery and obstetrics, I guess, quote unquote, that I practice. Um, but anyway, so yes, that is the story of how I went into obstetrics. Would you call yourself, if, if you had to give yourself one category, do you think you fit in more which, with the witches and women healers or more with the midwives or more with the obstetricians? And those three things can be the same thing. But I'm curious, like when you're in meditation, what comes to you? Like, what is your role when you're sitting with a woman and her legs are spread and there's the portal is opening? Like, yeah. Who are you? Well, it's funny because I find myself kind of in the mix between the ancient midwifery, which is your. So it's not necessarily based on, you know, spellcraft and holding circle and that, but basically acknowledgement of what is good for your utmost um, optimal health, yeah. spiritual health as well. And so when I do hold space for women having children, I am thinking scientifically enough that I'm making sure a woman is safe by those standards, but I'm also holding space for the belief that I have in that woman to birth her child and for that baby to come through her vagina without intervention. So, um, and I can tell when things are going off into a place where intervention might be needed, yeah. but I'm looking at them, not expecting that, like yeah. knowing and trusting and talking to myself, saying as a midwife energy, like it's just going to be fine. Yeah. Gonna, this is the way babies come out. Yeah. We're going to be okay. I'm keep doing this too. I'm just going to keep adjusting your mic, the Dr. Flores. Um, but yes, so that's that's um, what I do. So I would say, what did you call the first arm of your? <laughs> I I literally had to come up with that on the spot, but it was like, like they're something all something witchy. Yeah, like like the witches and women healers, and then we've got the midwives, and then we've got the doctors. And the reason I have those two in separate categories, the witches and midwives, is because any woman who was practicing medicine would have been considered a witch during right. roughly three centuries of massacres across Europe. Yeah that trickled into the United States. But 
you know, back in the day, you wouldn't say you were anything. You were just a person who's using some, call them what you will, folk remedies or whatever to keep your family alive. You've got nothing to eat. You've got no hygienic measures to take care of, you know, waste or excrement or decomposing bodies. So, I mean, feudalistic times were a totally different, totally rough. Yeah. Right, rough. So I wonder. Did you know that um, the broom and the, I mean, perhaps you do because you read so much on it. The cat are symbols of the midwife, you know, person cleaning out the dirt from her home, knowing that that's going to prevent allergens and issues regarding the bacteria brought in from you know, oh, stepping on crap in your farm all day. Yeah. So the broom became a symbol of cleaning that a, a, a wise woman would always have. And I yeah. say wise woman instead of witch because witch is very much like a, a person who is demonized in many I cultures. love that you said that. I yeah. wanted to ask you that yeah. because a lot of people are you know, on their Instagram profiles. It's real kitschy now to be like, I'm a witch. Right. And it's like, okay, that that is not really, I think, what you're saying. Right. That is using the oppressor's term. Right. And that's not my place to judge for those listening. I am not saying don't call yourself anything. Yeah, I, there's a lot of that reowning of terms that are is yeah. happening right now, right? Right. Like, like reclaiming the word pussy mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, great. I love it. Like, that's important. <laughs> that's great. And let's acknowledge that this term witch, the malleus maleficarum, like, there was people hunting you and labeling you that. And heaven forbid you had that X put on your chest. And then you have to be burned at the stake in front of your family. Yeah. Let's be very real. Like this is not cutesy folklore fairy tales. This was a very real thing that is not just this this uh, perversion we see during Halloween. Right. Like this was a, a very, very scary time for women. Right. So exactly. to call yourself a witch now, maybe there is a reclamation. And I'll leave that to, to those Sometimes. who identify. Um, but I was wondering what you would say, because right. that is a very confronting part of history, it is. even from the masculine wounds that I imagine emerged. Yeah, and I think that there is a role to have a term for something demonic and yeah. female for yeah. certain storytelling and lesson making. And I don't have a word for that. But if you were to tell Hansel and Gretel and I don't know what else you would call the evil witch, you know, that takes them and cooks them and eats them, you know, like, yeah. I mean, that's that's the story, you know, and, and I get that you're teaching children to avoid strange circumstances and not to trust the person giving you candy, <laughs> even though she sure. looks like your mother or grandmother, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, there's a purpose behind using the term witch there. And I think that it, it transcends the the new age version of it now. Um, yeah, but wise woman. So yes, so wise woman. I think yeah. that that's just so much more beautiful. Yeah, and so the cat, anyway, was considered a disgusting creature that was, you know, it jumped on boats and came to America, um, and was taken up by wise women to kill rodents that carried fleas, like bubonic plague. Yeah, harbored. You yeah, know, or, yeah, that harbored bubonic plague. And so there's even some theories that there was a mass. Um, extinction of cats um, or at least some type of sacrifice of a lot of cats um, with the thought that you know it was Anglican church times that that it was dirty to have a cat but then these witches would keep them because they knew they killed these these rats and so perhaps annihilating the feline is one reason why the rats populated Europe so profoundly and why the bubonic plague blew up because they got rid of the cats I mean theory right no one's got no one really knows but that's one thought maybe all those those uh the witch hunters and all those you know 
assholes back in the you yeah. know the dark middle ages maybe they were all infected with toxoplasmosis <laughs> yeah messing with the brain inflammatory and they were like get rid of the cats <laughs> yeah some sort of inflammation of the brain that was making them do weird shit and that does happen yeah yeah wow okay well how far are we into this interview man we're this is juicy this is juicy fruit over here um let's take a moment and just appreciate where we're at yeah. victoria there is a a gaggle of awesome-looking people around who are building sandcastles and enjoying the beach. We're in Oceanside, California. And the reason I'm here is because I'm here for a home birth. And there aren't many people like us who go through that whole process and then still decide, I don't really think this is for me. So let's go back to your story and let's reflect on this home birth thing. Because it's actually, um, a lot of people are like, you're like a, a midwife. And for all the reasons we've described, I say, I can't say that I'm a midwife. I wish I was a midwife. I am a wannabe midwife through and through. Yes. And that, but that would be a slap in the face to the, the sort of ancestral lineage, these traditions by which midwifery survived out of necessity of these feudalistic peasant women who couldn't afford all of the up-and-coming obstetricians and hospitals and everything that eventually, by the turn of the 20th century, uh, became kind of like the, I don't know, what everybody wanted. It was like the hot thing back then. Hey guys, it's Nathan. Sorry for this brief interruption, but I got to tell you about a new offering that I'm going to be uh, making available this fall. You've heard about the Born Free Method. That's our comprehensive pregnancy and postpartum program. That includes 12 months of weekly calls, 100 plus video modules, tons of citations around pregnancy and postpartum. Well, Born Free is an umbrella under which there's going to be a lot of other courses. And the second course in this anthology is called Clear and Free, Your Solution to Persistent HPV. It's a collaborative effort between me and Mimi Lindquist of The Medicine Podcast. She um, is a relative expert in, uh, I say relative because I don't consider anybody a full expert in anything, but Mimi has gone deep into human papillomavirus and some of the ways that we can use lifestyle to augment the immune system in hopes that your routine screening for HPV or your routine pap smears are going to come up negative and clear. So you can go another three to five years and not even think about it until your next um, appointment, whereby hopefully you'll screen negative again. So the typical path that many women experience of all ages in their OBGYN clinic is, hey, you're due for a pap smear and we're going to test for HPV as well. If one of those comes back abnormal, your OBGYN is going to say, oh, darn it, it's abnormal. Why don't you come back for a repeat screening in six months or 12 months? And this process continues, right, until you end up with either a progression of abnormal cells in the cervix caught on pap smear or a persistence of human papillomavirus, meaning your body has not been able to integrate the message of this virus, right? Remember, viruses are not living things. So in the meantime, 
your OBGYN or your midwife or nurse practitioner hasn't given you any tools in order to help support your immune system through diet, through movement, through sleep, through stress management, through hydration, through all of those modifiable lifestyle factors so that you can be sure that if you had an HPV um, positive screen initially, that the next time it's going to be negative. Mm -hmm. Now, the other part of that conversation, of course, is, hey, I got the HPV vaccine. Aren't I safe now? Well, the problem with Gardasil 9, which is the primary vaccine that is offered to young men and women as early as age nine, has not been demonstrated to be either effective at preventing cervical cancer nor safe because of the aluminum adjuvants and everything else. So there's a lot of controversy around HPV and cervical cancer and even cervical cancer screening methods along with this vaccine. What do I do? Should I get it? Should I not get it? Should my little girls get this vaccine? And so Given the sort of swirling <laughs> pool of information and misinformation out there, I went deep as well. And Mimi and I teamed up in order to clarify for everybody out there the realities around what HPV and cervical cancer screening looks like, what can be done while you're waiting for your follow-ups in order to support your immune system to integrate the message of that virus and avoid any abnormal cells developing and hopefully avoid painful biopsies or even worse, leap procedures, cold knife comb procedures, and of course, worst case scenario, cervical cancer. There's so much that's in your power. Your doctors, your practitioners probably aren't maybe edu educated or incentivized to share all of that information, but we're going to do that through this course, as well as all of the reali realities around vaccines, especially Gardasil 9. Um, we look at data from the United States and elsewhere in the world. We speak to um, attorneys who are litigating on this topic around Gardasil 9. What you can expect from the course is around 90 lessons self-guided. And we're going to also offer monthly calls for six months after you enroll with me and Mimi, where we're going to be able to answer all of your questions and provide you with that support that perhaps you aren't getting from the healthcare professionals that you've entrusted um, your, your cervical cancer screening and your well woman care. So we get into HPV, we get into cervical cancer screening, we get into the immune system, vaccines, viruses. It's everything you've wanted to know about any of those topics. Go to the link in the show notes and you'll find your way to book an enrollment call and we'll get you enrolled right there. We're going to be enrolling in October. I hope to see you there. <music>
you know, on a tight cervix. Because, yes, that can happen on a soft cervix, like in a second twin or something. But in a, um, in a, like a tight cervix, it, it would cause a tear and a bleed. And that's a really hard thing to stop. So there were things happening yeah. in the midwife, quote unquote, community. That's what they called themselves, right? So that's what the doctors at the time called them as well. It was midwifery. Um, but it wasn't the wisest midwifery and that my wise midwifery did exist as well simultaneously. But of course, um, the people of the time who had the voices to publish information and belittle others in order to, you know, make themselves feel stronger, like you had mentioned, yeah, the fifth yeah. generational war that you had mentioned in your podcast prior, yeah. um, was that, you know, it was an opportunity for the medical um, world to look at themselves as um, finding another frontier that can could be conquered and understood um, and women to be saved. And I think their intentions were good initially. Um, and then there is also writings about um, physicians in the 1800s saying, you know, it, it takes a lot of work just to sit with a woman. Just sit with her. It takes a lot of work and they, people can't pay enough to make it worth a physician's yeah. while. So let's let's figure out as physicians how to speed things along or how to um, only bring them in when they're at a certain point in there. And so we're going to allow families to take care of their their early laboring clients or, or family yeah. members, whatever. Um, yeah, before they came into the hospital. And so there's just, you know, more and more of a push towards if physicians are going to want to do it, they're also going to have to make it more surgical because that's what they do. They're surgeons. And that was very um, like a patriarchal pat on the back to say you were a surgeon. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's always been a powerful thing to tell someone you're a surgeon, right? Because it's a lot of skill. It takes a lot of skill. I actually think at the advent of of surgical steel, it was initially considered very barbaric. Originally, originally, the real physicians were the ones that were checking pulse and they were tasting the urine and all this. Finer, but then when yeah, then these you know we had the like the Iron Age and these guilds develop, and then they had all this surgical steel. And I think that when it was first being used, it was like probably bushery. Probably was. Like had no idea what we were doing. Knives. Imagine how sharp a scalpel is. I don't think we had anything that sharp. Until later, right? Until sure. later. Like so, after the mid, the medieval times. Yeah, at least right. reliably right. sharp. But then I'm know? talking after medieval Total. times, like... It was sexy. Yes, when be- yeah. beyond even Renaissance periods where, yeah. you know, there there was more establishment of colleges like in Edinburgh or um, sure. in in just London period. But I, I know Scotland was one of the biggest seats of obstetrical yeah. Um, education. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we end up in this place where... Uh, let's go back to your story because I think your story... And how you tell it is actually really sort of relevant to, to I think, the crux of this conversation, which is it's not very popular to do what we do. No. So we'll end with that. But let's talk about you got into where did you do your OBGYN residency? And at what point was there a, an inclination that, oh, no, you're looking backwards and you're looking at this dark tunnel and you're like, how did I get here? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I think I mentioned to you once before because I was at your Twin Breach conference and we got to. to it was awesome. It was so awesome. It was so awesome. So really so happy it. you're going to come next year too. It was so awesome. Yeah. I know. I'm glad you told me already the dates so that I could block it off immediately. It's uh, August 8th through the 12th, everybody <laughs> listening. 2024. We're bringing in traditional midwives. Stu's coming back. David's coming back. Christine Laria. I got to get her there. Uh, we've got midwives coming in from other countries, traditional midwives. Uh, what simulator intensives it's going to be an awesome time but anyways i'm glad you had a good time i did i had a great time so anyway so we had talked about a little bit of my initial hesitance to do residency period because i came so when me and my 
husband, um, Kenneth your husband. Moses. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth Prakash Moses, MD. Um, shout out. Shout out. <laughs> um, he's an author of Clinical Growth Anatomy or the Atlas of Go to your bookshelf. Pull the book out. He's an Alsevier awarded author. <laughs> That's yes, him. He's great. But okay, beyond him, um, I, I remember like fighting with him about like, look, I don't want to do residency. Come on. Like, I know what I need. Like, I just want to like be happy and like stop this education stuff. I mean, it has been intense this whole time. And I do come from a family that was kind of just like, stop learning, just live, make some money, do something with a family, have a family, you know, all those things. And so I had those natural pressures which I felt like, you know, you get baby fever in your 20s. I don't know if you yeah. remember, yeah. like women in their 20s, your wife in her 20s, perhaps like you get baby fever and it's totally healthy, normal and natural. And so I had the urge to just settle and have my family. And, you know, the system of medicine is saying, no, you got to you got to do this. You got to do that before you can. And so begrudgingly, I did. I went through um part no most of my residency I just didn't complete the last five months but um I I went to Kern Medical that is um used to be called Kern Medical Center in Bakersfield California um anyway I think I also I was adjusting the camera and I think I sure you up <laughs> no I was just thinking whether or not I, I want to mention that um when I was at USC and doing my rotations, it was really new to me, the practice of obstetrics. And I think I was well-trained in the school, but when I was learning obstetrics, I was kind of like really behind in like what I thought it was compared to some of the girls that were doing their rotations or what we call clerkships, right? Yeah. Um, they kind of just like knew, like perhaps they had shadowed more OBGYNs than I had, or they had an OBGYN in their family. But for me, I was really expecting kind of a midwifery education, like really just understanding birth. Getting to sit with right. birth and yeah, and and get to know people really well yes. and connect with them. Like yeah. I imagine that was my experience as well. I didn't yeah. have the baby fever, but I had I'm sure my wife had a little inkling of that, but yeah. It comes from men later. They do. They actually have studies on that. Men get baby fever around 40 <laughs> if they don't I'm, have any. <laughs> I feel like I've got baby fever right now. Are you around 40? Yes, you are. So there you go. I'm just kidding. But um, anyway, um, yeah. So I, I, I think I was kind of thrown off when I, when I had to learn how to be an obstetrician as a medical student. All of the jargon, the paperwork, the um, criterias that had to be met. Um, the um, diagnostics that needed to be done, all yeah. these things. I was like, whoa. And, you know, I'm and I know that I'm more of a person that practices from the heart and I'm really good with my hands. I'm like an artist in, in some ways. Um, and I and the, like you said, the, the computer part, the structured part, the paper part, the um, disconnected parts were not me. So I kind of knew really early. This is before residency that I'm going to hate residency. Yeah. I'm going to hate it. And internalizing that, I think that, you know, I went in saying, okay, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to do it because this is what everyone says I have to do. But it's not because I want to. Whereas I feel like everyone else was there because they wanted to. Yeah. And they were so much more grateful to Just do it. Eking out on yeah. The they, curves and yes, the numbers yes. and the stats and the pharmacology yes, and yeah, I mean, I did think out on the, it, but like, I didn't like. Um, it wasn't like I I wanted it forever. Like, I liked learning just because I like learning. Um, but I felt like a lot of people were like, 
I'm learning this and I'm going to be doing this forever. And this is yeah. happiness. Yeah. And for me, it was like, you know, like Rose Dawson says in Titanic, she was looking at her life like if she would have married Cal. Everyone remembers that scene. And she's just like, and it just looked like hell. And for me, from the very beginning, looking forward to practicing as an obstetrician was like, this is hell. And I just signed up for hell and I'm going to live hell forever and ever. And I was the only one that thought like that. And I knew I was good. And I and I got, you know, the praise and stuff like that and all the things to encourage me to keep going and do more. And I was doing it. But every time also my stomach tightening and going, no, no, no. Until, you know, I, I, I made enough enemies that I was like, okay, sorry, Kern. Like, I'm going to try and do it somewhere else. And so then I left there, did my fourth year over at Tufts. Loved the girls there. Tufts, like in Lo- Boston? Yeah, yeah. I oh went my to Lord. Yeah, they were so kind with the, the other residents. The um, person that I clashed with actually there was more on an admin level, um, which is like the opposite situation, which I thought was hilarious because um, I was like, okay, um, I think that if I can't get along with everybody in two different environments, and this is going to be my life, then I just should not be in these environments. I just shouldn't be, right? Like you need both. Yeah, I just should have, and I needed to like listen to my body. Like we always, and I already had that education from being alternative, right? So I was okay. If you're doing everything possible to fit the mold, and you cannot do it, your body is telling you, don't do it. Yeah, don't do it. Just stop. This is not for you. Just yeah, exactly. You're I was, not cut out for this. Yeah, that's how I had to. They did, my sure, attendings sure. told me that, and I was like, what do you mean I'm not cut out for it? And I was like, no, I'm not cut out for this. Like, I don't, I'm not like you guys. Yeah, I didn't think of it like I wasn't cut out for it because, like, I felt like, okay, I am doing it, but I'm very stubborn and very um, set on what I am doing it, how I'm doing things already. So if I'm just not able to get along, like, I just need to be somewhere where I will. Where I, where I find my tribe, yeah. where I find my tribe. So I, so, and I was always talking about home birth since the beginning as well. I mean, since forever, I knew home birth was like something I acknowledged as the legitimate form of having your baby. And I remember having arguments with people and, and the argument always ended with, well, our system is not made for home birth. Like if we were like Europe and had a transfer system in place, it would be so much more safe here, but it's not. And I kind of started to want to believe those things because I could not understand why home birth was still not practiced. I was like, this is just obviously the way to do it if you yeah. can. You know, yeah. it should be level one before you go to level two, the hospital. So, um, Shit. yeah. So I really, and I, and I, I think I even mentioned um, people out there might know the, the book Bless Me Ultima was about a midwife named Ultima, an old woman who kind of is doing what you're doing. She would come to someone's home, live with them get to know them, um, and then help them deliver or give birth to their babies and then move on to the next whole ho- household. That's how she lived as an yeah. old woman without a partner, without children. And there was something so independent and seductionish about it that I was like, I kind of could live like that. Like if I didn't have a husband, if I didn't have children, if I was old and alone, I would totally live at people's houses and deliver their babies. Like I could totally do that. Your family of gypsies. Totally, you're just yeah. Harkening back. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like the best way to grow old and die, and eventually die in someone's 
home who I've cared for because they are, every time you deliver one of a, a family's baby at home, they become like a family yeah. to you. They yeah. really do. And so um, to me, I was like, oh, that's security because women don't think necessarily of money as security. It's just, do you have a home and someone to take care of you when you can't wipe your own butt, right? Community yeah, is community. the new currency. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I, and so um, that's what I was aiming for. And I was just like in the medical world going, this is toxic and I believe in home birth. And I don't know about this whole thing about, you know, our system isn't cut out for home birth because we're not, you know, set up with these transfer stuff. So I actually called Stu. Like, I think it was January of 2020. And I was like, Stu, I... Stuart Fishbein. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. So you called Stu. Stuart Fishbein, MD. The legend, the living legend. I didn't know he was a legend at all at the time. It's so funny. Like, I literally was just, like, Googling home birth obstetrician. And his name is <laughs> not too many. There really is Not many. too many people like him. He came up. I looked at his website. I was like, oh, my God, lives next to my family in L.A. I should, like, check it out. And so, like, I called him and asked him, like, hey, is this, like, really a, a way to live a life? Is he still at the Ritz-Carlton? No, he was, um, I, I remember those days. No, he was already living in Studio City at the time. Um, and um, he's like, yeah. He's like, I, you know, you don't live like perhaps a famous surgeon might live. You're not going to get the accolades that, you know, a famous MD would get. But it's a living. You can yeah. do it. I mean, you learn from the midwives how to um, live during feast and survive during famine because work comes in waves right um and um yeah and to figure out a way to sustain myself and so he said yes come and see and i'll show you and i said okay so i think it took another two months and misery and it was just my body really going like this in residency in residency still oh it was like february or something by this point and i was just like really doing everything i could to make everyone happy. But you know how like, mm -hmm. girls are girls. Mm -hmm. They are, and it's really hard for us to shake things when they happen. Yeah. And um, that's, you know, hormonally regulated. Like our adrenaline system doesn't go up and down as quickly as men, right? You remember that? Like it just doesn't, it just, <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't. So um, it, it, it took a lot more work for me to, um, to get friendly with people that you know either I offended or that they offended me or whatever it was and so um I, I got just got to a point where I was like you know this is toxic I'm gonna just any male residents in your programs there was there was one boy um Andrew Polio super sweet cute kid um and shout out to Andrew, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> he is currently um going into oncology I believe guy onc um I don't know what he's doing his fellowship but anyway but yeah it's been that long He's already in fellowship program. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I left. I ended up um, putting in my two weeks and moving out to L.A. and hanging out with Stu. Um, and it was during COVID. And so I got to see how he practiced during COVID. And that kind of like pushed my understanding of health and hygiene because, you know, he's wonderfully open minded about, you know, the art of medicine versus, you know, quick anchoring in any decision making and. Um, you know, not thinking once you've made a decision. Yeah. Um, and so I learned a lot. And yeah, I, I was trained in his style of home birth obstetrics. And I'm so grateful that I got that before he pieced out because now he's unavailable to do such teaching. So I was like his yeah. final apprentice in that regard. I'm really blessed to say that. And now I'm carrying on that mission. Yeah, I think that I suspect that, you know, for those out there listening, if you're considering this type of path, it, it is 
in some ways easier to become a midwife and do that than to become a doctor and have to re-engineer your life. And I, I suspect, you know, I met Stu in a very similar way. I was in residency and I was like, this sucks. And then he came to give a talk and I was like, can I hang out with you for a little bit? And and then I, I went to fellowship in San Diego and then I went out to Kentucky. So there was no chance I was going to pick up his practice, but it was shortly thereafter that he met you. And I think he needed an exit strategy because I imagine that what you talked about, this feast versus famine, this cyclical wave, and the work is great, but it is really, really hard to do this, which is why when I see midwives who've been doing it for 35 years or like the parteras in Mexico yeah. who've done 20,000 births, I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. It's like, like talk about somebody who knows themselves and like is 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 pursuing a calling because it is not an easy path. So I suspect Stu probably was ready even years before he did to retire because it is such a hard job. Why don't we um what do we got here? We've been recording for almost an hour. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um maybe for people that are considering this path and then we we'll just have to do more podcast we'll just have to do you that. and i can just rip for I hours i just love that i know you and <laughs> met like my heart is yours like thank you for connecting and for showing up the way you do and looking me in the eyes when we talk like is that right well i mean it's just like the collegiality i didn't have that in the medical system you know it wasn't that people didn't want to make eye contact it's that they didn't want to connect mm-hmm. and i think people become calloused over i don't think OBGYNs or labor and delivery nurses or Anybody in the hospital wants to perpetuate that system. Right. I mean, maybe they do, but I don't think that that's the majority. Yeah. There like, are some crazy people out there. Right? Yeah, there are. That's always in, in the midwifery community as well. Yeah, people that yeah, just yeah. maybe are like, well, I'm like, I'm crazy. I don't know. <laughs> but most of the people you want, really, they really want to do good work. And I don't think that are the you mentioned administrators. I don't think that the the business execs and the administrators really give a shit. I, I they probably do give a shit, but they don't even know enough. To fully give all of the shits, yeah, you know, 100%. so it's like, like they're trying to do their best and it's like, you have no idea what clinical medicine is. You have no idea what it feels like to hold a dead baby. How are you going to put in policies or to do chest compressions on a human body or whatever? How are you going to help me? And while we need that, it, it sometimes seems to do a little bit more harm than good. Absolutely. Just get the fuck out of my way and yeah. let me do the thing that I spent 14 years doing. <laughs> right, exactly. Because the admin is like, okay, great. I'm glad you saved that life. Now make sure your note is in by tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because like, like, we need to bill for that. It's like, it's I'm like, about to jump in front of a, off a, a bridge yeah. and you're telling me I got to get my notes in. Exactly. <laughs> I need therapy for a week before I can even yeah. sit down and yeah. write this. Amen. So screw your billing time. Sorry. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. it doesn't make friends. It doesn't make friends. No. So, uh, no. so yes, I totally feel you. <laughs> so I guess if somebody's listening and maybe, you know, you, it sounds like people reach out to you. People always reach out to me and they want to understand the pros and cons of doing this. I think we should be very honest with them. Let's first start with the cons. I, I just released this podcast. Actually, today, this morning, released a podcast on horizontal violence due to some shit I've been dealing with, uh, which, you know, I, I don't really want to get into it, but it's a reflection of just the the degree of horizontal violence that we see within any industry, but especially, and, and like it pains me to say this, but especially within birth work. Midwives tearing down midwives, midwives criticizing midwives because of their training or their lack of licensure or that they, you know, came from an apprenticeship model versus a graduate studies model or whatever. There's so much of that. 
And I think that when you decide to do this, and, and I want to hear what you think about this because you just listened to it. I think that when we decide that we're going to actually straddle both worlds, you start getting hit with stones from both sides. Yeah, totally. So I think that's a big downside. That's a big con. But I'm curious, have you had that I think as a it would be worse experience? for you, honestly, because you are a white male. And I feel like the um, the home birth birth work world is really um, kind of on edge about listening to anything from any white male, yeah. especially an MD. I'm carrying the MD part, but I'm a woman of color and female. Um, and we're both young looking. We're both, pretty, you know, and I think that there's some natural tendencies to listen to um, people with age. And I yeah. appreciate that. I get that. I elderhood. Listen. Like we I need more elderhood. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. the same way. It's natural. So I feel that there's that difficulty in having to kind of convince people that I do know what I'm doing. Um, I will say I have learned what I'm doing outside of residency um, to such a degree that it is like becoming a midwife. Um, I Even today we're talking about the different ways of, of ruling out ruptured membranes or breaking a bag of water. It's very different yeah. um, depending on the thought that you've been taught, right? And so um, I've cleared some cobwebs out of the old closets and I've replaced them with new furniture in the home. Um, some midwifery st style stuff that I've actually been practicing a lot yeah. and underneath the, um, you know, the teaching of Stu as well. So I got a lot of um, feedback on it and got to actually see it and practice before I even went at it alone. I was able to trust the way that I practice now in a more midwifery model. Yeah. Um, and so I am a lot of people will introduce me as basically she's a midwife with an MD. So I've I've been so graciously accepted by so many midwife friends um, as that, you know, just someone who just gives a little bit extra when they yeah. want that thing, but without telling them to stop what they're doing the way they're doing it. Because I also appreciate that, yeah. that that way of doing things. Yeah. yeah. I would say that's, I mean, apart from the, the sort of rigors of the work, if there's a, again, I'm, I'm speaking to people who are like, maybe in a place where we were and they yeah. didn't have a lot of mentorship. I certainly didn't feel like I had a ton of mentorship because most of my attendings, they were probably, I mean, they thought it was a little bit nuts for wanting to go into hospice and palliative care. Right. And I brought that beautifully into my work in birth. But it was so, it was so like. Uh, I've learned there's so many people that are not creative when you tell yeah. them dreams like this. Yeah. And even yeah. when I was really young and into both law and medicine, or even pharmacology, I loved it all equally at one yeah. point in my life in yeah. undergrad. And I was like, I want to do it all. And everyone's like, no, you can't. You have That's to choose one. Right. Yeah. But then you get there and you notice, oh, this guy did his MD, then got his JD. Or this yeah. guy got his JD, yeah. then did his MD. And there's- Should we go to law school together? I know, right? And we're on the <laughs> I mean, University of Arizona I'm or whatever. 100% <laughs> considering legislative work in my queen phase so that I can help yeah. women- or midwives get more of a word in yeah. the legislation. Because right now, the loudest crowd is the ACOG crowd, right? Yeah. When it comes to birth work. And the only, you know, solution or cure to that is to have a competitive, loud That's group. Right. And um, if there's someone to do it, maybe I can't. So I'm thinking about it, but then you know how it is to be in politics. Everyone knows way too much about you. And it's just kind of like your legacy is beyond your lifestyle. Your 420 photos are going to yeah, resurface. It's and it's like <laughs> everything is like going to just be there, you know, and then everyone's going to find out that I had a tongue ring and they're going, I did too. <laughs> My God. <laughs> I'm going to just be thought of some Bunch crazy. Of fucking weirdos over weirdos. here. Yeah, side. exactly. <laughs> so anywho, but yes, so that is one hard thing is that, yes, you have to be accepted by the midwife community. 
Um, the obstetric community ain't going to accept you. You just kind of like yeah. got to get over it. They're going to think you are null, just like irrelevant if you're not going to play by their Bible. And I think that it's really their Bible, the ACOG yeah. guidelines, because like you, you had mentioned in your podcast, the Christian ideals have faded away and people, all religious ideals have, and they want something to believe because yeah. that is our nature as human beings. And so in our practice obstetrics, the Bible is ACOG. The the green books, the and the cult is, is the, the cult of medicine. It totally is. Yeah. And um that's where you have to believe. That's where science becomes a religion. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that I think is relevant for somebody who's kind of seems like us yeah. that hasn't let their identity identity completely be washed, you know, uh, washed away. Gotta have a shield. Yeah. And then of course you have to be prepared. Like you are the person in birth. Um you know, I, I think I told you about the breach that came just yeah. after my conference. Um, I had all my resuscitation gear. I had only been going to births with other midwives as their backup. And this was my, like, I'm the guy now. And there was a doula and there was another midwife down the street. So I had them with my team. But I was like, I got to have all the gear. So I, like, grabbed all the gear. And, you know, two weeks later, uh, she goes into labor and there's a surprise breach. And we had just finished the conference. So I just did a little low and nudge and out pops this baby's head. And I was like... Fuck yeah, that's how it's done. <laughs> but I, I, it's not like I've gone to a ton of breaches. No, not many people have, you know. And and so when you're actually like, as as Teddy Roosevelt said in his, you know, Brene Brown always draws on his work. Like when you're in the arena, like your 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 face is the one that's blood, you know, bloody bloodied up and marred, and you're covered in dirt. Like it's you, and those other opinions just can't matter when you're the one there who is not there to guarantee a good outcome, but to hold the space and to be present throughout from start to finish, that is a tremendous amount of uh, confidence, of of open-mindedness, open-heartedness that you have to bring to that job. So if you're out there listening, there are some downsides. There is a lot of pressure on you. And with that pressure, you temper your steel and you become even more confident oh, yeah. in the whole birth process. But not until you're in it. Right. So what about some of the pros? I mean, here we are sitting here, yeah. both doctors, not in the I hospital, know. not on call, not with a fucking pager attached to my <laughs> like hip band so that it vibrates my groin so I, I can know. wake up at night. We're looking at the ocean and we're 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 still doing our jobs. Yeah. I'm waiting actively for a baby. <laughs> You're doing exactly what those physicians of yours said was so boring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God. But I will say there's a, the pro and the con of that. Yes, you get your own time, but you always have that little anxious tick in the back of your mind working. And that kind what of. If, what if. Yeah. And that's a little bit irritating when, and, and the midwives would say the exact same thing, when you really are trying to focus on another task because your first, like, I guess, bond or, yeah. or whatever your obligation is is to your client right it's your first yeah. obligation yeah so um so yeah so that's kind of rough because it usually lasts days versus you know the 10 minutes in a hospital when you show up for your shift you say i i, I did the birth i delivered yeah, the baby exactly. yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't. It's, it's, so, so <laughs> that part is a little bit of yeah. a pro and a con because but it's you know i like that we get to be here with a family like we're here at a family's place yeah and that's that is so much better than being in Breaking a bread, drinking some wine, really getting to know what makes the other tick. Yeah. That is critical in the sort of high intensity, uh, very exciting, very love, very fulfilling work of being in the home. 
And also, um, I think that it's a pro that I get to do the things in the birth room now versus me putting in the order and someone else doing it and being the face interaction with the client or patient in the hospital and um, taking not the credit, but like really being in a situation where the doctor is kind of black sheeped out like yeah. they're not really here for you you know even though we are made aware and everything like that they're not present and yeah. so i think that that I, and I mean you probably remember being young too being like why am i paying this doctor in a hospital two thousand dollars to be here for 10 minutes yeah. you know like it just kind of doesn't make sense like sure. that and it's very different here it's like you're with them all the time they have access to you all the time and so it can be a con for some lifestyles but that's why you just take less clients and you enjoy it when you do get it because yeah. you get to connect and that's what's going to feed your soul and keep you coming back. And that is so much more enriching than getting a number of deliveries. So, you know, so much more. I I've, I also have found that I'm getting really, really resourceful. So, like, for example, we uh, so we're in. We're in Southern California right now, and I used to, before I got recruited out to Kentucky and finished fellowship at UC San Diego, I was working at Scripps Encinitas, which by the way, for anybody listening, of every hospital I've worked at, which is about nine now, there is no maternity unit quite as good as Scripps Encinitas. It's tiny. Everybody knows each other. It like They even threw me like a little surprise prank where they had me rush in for like a precipitous birth, and they handed me a bottle of wine dressed as a baby. And I was like, like I'll even show, I'll show you the video. That well, maybe I'll have to so link it in the show. Uh, Bethany, one of the Ellen Dean nurses. Hi, Bethany. Shout out. Um, and all of the staff, they're just incredible people. And uh, so anyways, the reason I brought them up is that last night, my client, she thought maybe her waters had opened. And I was like, okay, well, the little litmus, you know, the little nitrazine strip, it was kind of equivocal. It was kind of like greenish, maybe bluish, maybe purplish. It was like, I don't exactly really know. Looking at exactly. So you and I kind of sh- shared it. I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go to the hospital and maybe they'll recognize me. And sure enough, they like, they were like, yeah, here's a nitrazine, some more nitrazine. Here's a slide if you want to make it. And of course, they don't have a microscope anymore on labor delivery units, but I could bring it back and take it to the lab or whatever. And they recognized me immediately and, they were, and I got her pre-registered and did all of that. So there's that collegiality, which is so critical for the transfer, if we had to transfer. Yeah. Um, but I know the doctors, so I was going to give them a call when they're on, you know, give them a call, talk to the doc and say, hey, listen, doctor to doctor, we got a transfer coming in. Everything's fine, but whatever. But then I got back and I was like looking through my gear. I had to bring all my gear across the country from Kentucky and I'm missing my mayos, my sterile mayos. And I'm missing my... Um, Oh, my bandage David. scissors. You don't need any of that. I know. You I don't. know. You just I know. Don't. <laughs> I know. And I know that. But it was like, it was like a little bit of an OCD on my part. Yes. And I was like, well, I got to have those. So I went to the medical supply store because also, here's the other thing. You have oxygen coming out of the walls in the hospital. So I, I have an oxygen tank. You don't need it. You well, don't well need it. I, listen, at that breach that I had, I had to do a full resuscitation and the baby pinked up and was grimacing by the time I got to the hospital. I like having oxygen. It's not your practice. I like having it. I know, I know. And it's also like the client is 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 worried about certain things. So I'm like, yeah, I think client preference. Let me just get so you an oxygen tank. It's not a big deal. Right. We're probably not going to need it. Thank goodness we have it sometimes. Um, Sarah Rosser, my 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 partner, she's like she has a warmer and everything. She's like, listen, man, I'm not going to tell you what to do, 
But 90% of this stuff is useless. It totally is. And you can make, like you said, you get resourceful. You're like, can you put this in the microwave and warm it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You have a warm, you use other things that are around and really just never need it. It's a different, it's extra. And honestly, I do believe that we were born with what we need to be born with. Like we don't need extra stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, you know, so I had my extra stuff, all my extra stuff. And I was like, oh, man, maybe my like wife took those instruments home with her. But I was like, well, just in case I don't have those instruments, like I know I have them somewhere at home. But like, you know, when you're like, I don't know if I have that thing anymore. I think I lost it. I was like, I'll just go buy extra. So I went to the medical supply store and also had to get the oxygen tank. There was a gasket that was off. So the oxygen wouldn't come through the regulator. So I'm learning about all this stuff. And I never would have known about that unless I was a paramedic or, you know, an EMT or something. So. I go to the store and they replace it. I'm like, let me have a pair of those scissors and the bandage scissors and a needle driver. And they were like, because I have a kit, but I'd want an extra needle driver in case they're bent. I don't know. I'm just a little <laughs> bit, a little bit freaky. You're funny. So I brought them home and I was like, these aren't sterile. <laughs> and I was like, I need a, what's it called? A uh, autoclave. Auto auto no, I don't. Yeah, I don't. just made, I put a pot of water on the stove yes. and I boiled it for a half hour. Just like that old school. Yeah. But, yeah, but you would yeah. do that right before the delivery because they have to be freshly boiled. But um, the way we do it in the in the more midwife taught world, because I've learned from the midwives, I did not know any of this beforehand, is you can just put some water in a um, cookie sheet in your oven. Yeah. And then you put your instruments in the autoclave packets, put your instruments on a, a separate cookie sheet on the level above, and you just turn it, I think, to 250, I believe. And the steam. And yeah, the steam. Oh, and you, that's there, you put a little bit of water in the bags as well, because you're right, the steam is the special thing. Um, and then you just like do it for 15 minutes, but you got to watch it because and, and I use the autoclave paper. So I know that it hit the temperature for uh, oh, cut, yeah, for killing the bacteria. Once it's changed, it usually takes 10 to 15 minutes. 15 minutes is recommended by the I believe it's CDC or who like I was looking up autoclave stuff on there, too. Um, and that's sufficient. That's equivalent. And that's free. 15 you know? minute yeah. autoclave. Yeah. Yeah. Go online. It's right In there. The, uh, you know, I also harvest uh, mushrooms. And when I, I when I, <laughs> when I have to procure, when I have to start um, injecting for, for educational purposes only, and have to start injecting the spores, I have to get everything very sterile and I use an, a similar oven technique. So yeah. anyways, this Stu resource. Stu used a, um, a, um, an Instapot. That's oh, that's awesome. He would just run a cycle on the Instapot with some liquid in just there. Just crank it up to high. Yep. And... yep. and he'd put it in the bags just like we do because were the right size and then that's it once it does a cycle it's sterilized as that little paper changes and just put them away huh just the same an autoclave is like thousands of dollars yeah right yeah that's like, what i was like that I was like how do people do this yeah and uh, you know i'm just kind of fresh in this there so you go. appreciate your <laughs> your uh your input um man so anyways i you know i guess the resourceful the reason i wanted to end with that is that it actually kind of makes it fun again where it it's not just like this step by step it's like I got to figure this out. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to figure out how am I going to get this? How am I going to figure this thing out? Like it's it's just so much fun. So um, I love it too. You get to put your own IVs in now. I've always wanted to do that yeah. while I was, you know, in training and now I get to do it whenever I need it. It's rare that I do. I get to do all my own blood draws. I like love just having my hands in it and that brings the passion back to medicine that is washed out of you when you're just sitting behind a computer and putting in orders because that's all. Like, place a Foley, place yes, a McGee. yeah. exactly. Telling yeah. everyone to do the physical work and I never liked that. Yeah. Never liked that. Yeah. And so now, like you said, living it is way more fun. 
You know, I, as you brought up the IV thing, it just threw me back to, you know, when we were OBGYN residents, mm -hmm. we would always be in the operating room waiting for the surgery to start. And the anesthesiologist is starting, you know, in, inducing the anesthesia. There's somebody counting something. There's somebody getting this, this, this organized. And maybe you're waiting for your attending. While I was, you know, the, the patient is now under, I would always start the other large bore. Yeah. And anesthesiologist I, I got to know me. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. love doing that. Like, just I, but I would do it by talking directly to the anesthesiologist because if you ever asked your attending or your co-resident or whoever was with you, they'd be Absolutely. like, don't, don't do Absolutely. it. That's not what you do. You Another need to focus tip, on residents, yeah. talk to the anesthesiologist, get to know them. They will teach you everything you need to know about the physiology things. of the cardiovascular system. <laughs> right. I mean, the hierarchy of medicine is really impeding when it comes to education. I'm yeah. telling you, like the stuff that I've learned outside of residency is so amazing and is so significant. It's not taught in residency. And I can guarantee and say I know so much more about birth than I did as a resident. You know what we should do? We should host a little mini conference where we talk about some of the... Uh, like the suturing and all the other yeah. stuff. Um, we got Tracy Vogel, OB anesthesia, to talk about you know techniques for placing IVs and all this. I feel like those would be awesome skills. Yeah. I mean, the midwives already that. have classes like that going on, um, yeah. but there's always a need for more of them in the community because the once a year is definitely not enough. You know, I was actually thinking about the residents. Oh, for the I residents. was thinking okay. for residents who can't do it. Like I've had attendants yeah. tell me, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, why? And the anesthesiologist is like, just like, Place it, place an ET tube or whatever, exactly. you know, some of the um, NRP stuff that we do in the hospital, maybe teach them, bring midwives in and help them learn what it, what it's, how to do it with a headlamp as opposed to all the, you know, yeah. spotlights and everything else. Anyways, it's just another one of my things where, There's you know, so many things to learn and given the tempo of the OB training plus the new world medicine, which is, you know, robotic training. We are losing the art of the traditional midwives and the, the traditional obstetricians knowledge as well, like yeah. where it came from. I do think that, you know, obstetricians took some in, some stuff from midwifery in order to improve it. But there is now an opportunity to hand it back to midwives at right. the state level. Right. You know, so for because now midwives have become more advanced in natural birth than physicians. And it's OK that things go back and forth. And it feels like that is just not being allowed for. Yeah, totally. And it might need to come back towards physicians one day in the future. You know, if, if something does get lost in translation or a generation doesn't learn something um, and, you know, and then it goes back and then it'll just be like this forever. And that's sure. totally okay. I think, I think sort of to, as a final sort of concluding thought, I used to have a lot of disdain for the hospital system and I've tried to work myself gradually crawl myself back towards that because I realized that there is a really really great reason that we have doctors that we have hospitals that we have emergency rooms and operating rooms and a whole pharma pharmaceutical cornucopia available right it's important that we have that and I think it's important for us to also realize that there's so much that can be done before we even get to the hospital yes. I think we've just become overly overly reliant so collaboration community Stop pulling your colleagues down. Stop this like this like nonsense of right. just like pointing out other people's flaws because you don't want the attention to be on you. I think that that is really, really helpful if you're a resident out there, if you're a midwife, if you're an apprenticing midwife, whatever. Just like let's try to hold compassion for everybody. Yeah. I mean, and... the the obstetrical education has given information to midwifery training and that's very much core to their education when yeah. they do certification. Um, and it's a shame that we are not continuing to 
not we obstetricians yeah. in the traditional yeah. sense um, are not taking things from midwives, equally valuing it and teaching it to each other so that there's, you know, a cross communication. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cross contamination. <laughs> Amazing, Victoria. Well, I'm sure we're going to do another one of these in the near future. Yeah, we didn't even talk about breach and twins. And I kind of feel like <laughs> that's like the only thing that differentiates me from another midwife is, you know, that that skill. I mean, I am not needed by most people. Yeah. I was not needed by women in labor. Yeah. Get a midwife. Yeah. But yeah. because of laws, you know, they can't do twins and breaches. And so that's why I come in. Let's do that next time. Let's do it. Let's do that next time. I, I feel the same way. In fact, partly because it's like I have two little girls. I don't want to be on call for 10 births a month. And I get about that many requests. And I manage to persuade most people just find a midwife. Like they're going to do better than me anyways. As much as that's a terrible business model, I want you to know that there is 10 other midwives down the street who are so competent at this. You don't need me. Right. And I don't, I price myself higher than them because I want to incentivize people to do that. Huh? But then, of course, sometimes the laws and restrictions lead me to attend these births where they have two prior C sections, history of help, um, the, the breaches and whatnot, the twins, just like in California. Like there is a lot going on there on this political, it's actually geopolitical now. Yes. Because different regions have sort of different risk tolerances, it seems, from yeah. the state medical board and the other policymakers' side. So let's do a part two. Yeah. We'll talk about all of the other things. And sister, yeah. crushing it out there. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming and thank you for doing the work you did. You're so welcome. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in another amazing episode of the Holistic Abidjan podcast under wraps. If you want to find me, Nathan Riley, I'm the host. I am an MD. I'm a fellow of ACOG, meaning I'm a board certified OBGYN. I'm also a board certified hospice and palliative care physician. You can find all of my services and products at belovedholistics.com, including an online shop with discount codes for all of the brands that are at the top of their category from water and hydration to supplements to um, courses. I mean, there's so much there. So go check that out. I also offer private consultation. You can buy packages. I'm also, um, of course, the PRP fertility program is open to all comers. You can find all of that at belovedholistics.com. If you're a midwife and you need collaboration from a physician, I got you. Go to Beloved Holistics. You'll find everything there. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please support the sponsors. If you haven't left a five-star review, please go do that. It really, really means a lot. And lastly, if something in this episode touched you, share it with somebody that you love. I'm sure that they're going to love it too. We'll see you next week right back here on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Take care and do no harm. Take no shit. Bye-bye, everybody.